0: Well, if you turn in your Bible to so the book of 2 Corinthians, we will be continuing our study in the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 11. We will be reading from the first 15 verses of this book and chapter, in chapter 11. As I've shared with you in the past, there was a turning point in chapter 10 in which Paul addresses those who have been seeking to undermine his ministry. They have been personally attacking him, discrediting, slandering, speaking poorly of him, accusing him. And he has turned in chapter 10 to address these issues in defense of his ministry. And here in chapter 11, he marks out really the difference between him and these false spiritual leaders who had come into the church. So, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we begin reading in verse 1. I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy For I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached or if you've received a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles, but even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way, we have made this evident to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you, and when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you, and will continue to do so. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you. God knows I do. But what I am doing, I will continue to do, so that I may cut off opportunity. From those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we come before your word and we pray, O Father, you would remind us that it is your word that speaks truth into our lives. That we might be people who know you. May you cause us to be discerning. And Father, I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, grant to us understanding, illumine our minds... Fill us with your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today it seems as if there's no end to deceptive schemes and con artists. All you have to do is look around. There are Ponzi schemes and pyramid schemes. There's email phishing schemes. Scams of all types. Solicitors who will call your house asking for personal information. There will be unscrupulous contractors insurance scams, investment scams, plenty of people passing fraudulent checks and money orders. When there's forgeries to go around, there are forgeries of art, there are forgeries of artifacts. When disaster strikes, false charities arise, trying to solicit money when it won't go anywhere. Work from home, debt reduction schemes, sweepstakes scams. There's a whole host of deceptive practices. From products that are knockoffs to music and movie and software piracy. Deception is so very common and there's never a shortage, never a shortage of con artists around, swindlers. And they all work on the same premise. They all work on the same premise that something that is that they have or can do for you is supposedly genuine when really It's false. It's phony. False teachers go around in the church as well when people don't know the truth. When people don't know what the scriptures say. And they're deceived as well. In fact, a number of people, church leaders are deceived because they do not know the Bible. In one survey I read recently, it stated almost 50% of professors now teach in some seminaries that there is no virgin birth and that the story was a myth just to make a point. A nationwide survey by George Barner recently reported that only 53% of church leaders believe that moral truth is absolute. of church leaders doubt the existence of the Holy Spirit. And 19% of church leaders believe that Jesus sinned while alive. That's one out of every five in a recent survey. False teaching, false teachers, there have always been a danger to the church. And time and time again, the Bible reminds us and gives us a warning against being deceived, against being so gullible that you're duped into absorbing whatever is taught. And in this chapter, in the defense of his ministry, Paul draws a delineating stark contrast between him and a false teacher. He doesn't stoop to the level, as I shared with you last week, he doesn't stoop to the level of bragging about the same things that they were. That they have big credentials, that they came and were able to speak well. He doesn't stoop to ad hominem attacks, where he attacks them as people individually. He doesn't retaliate. They were accusing him of all sorts of things, you remember? They accused him of saying, well, you know what, when he writes a letter, he's real big. But when you see him, he's unimpressive. And when he talks, his speech is contemptible. Paul later on, will right, he'll boast, all right. But he'll boast in his weaknesses. He'll boast in his suffering. He'll boast in the grace of God. And in today's text, when he begins to defend his ministry, he draws a stark contrast here in this text. And the contrast is between him and how he conducts himself and the false teachers and what they look like. And so here we see the marks of an authentic, a genuine spiritual leader. How can you tell if somebody is a genuine spiritual leader? And here he goes through, telling us of his desire for the purity of the church, his love for the truth, that he has credibility because of his knowledge, he's without greed, he has a sincere love, and that he is faithful Those are the marks of a person who has a genuine love for God's people, a genuine shepherd who opposes false teaching. And it's important for us to know, because I've met believers, I've met a number, but some of them have gone to Bible school, who are duped into listening to certain televangelists, who just cannot discern and know what is true, because they are just undiscerning And it's important to us to be able to discern between truth and error, between true and false teachers. So what do they look like? The first aspect or mark of a genuine spiritual leader is that they are concerned for the purity of the church. They're concerned for the purity of the church. He says, I wish you would bear with me a little foolishness. Verse 1, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy for I betrothed you as one husband. So that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. And he doesn't want to engage in this type of foolish bantering to these false teachers who are self-commending themselves. Remember in the last chapter? They were patting themselves on the back. They had set up standards. They met those standards. And they talked about how they had met those standards. They have a list of credentials. They had letters from others, perhaps fabricated. And in this counterintuitive listing that he gives here, he says, look, bear with me. You are bearing with me, but I'm going to be sharing some things. I'm going to tell you the truth. And he expresses his heart here. And we see the heart of Paul, that he has a godly jealousy. He has a godly jealousy for the spiritual welfare of the Corinthian church. He's concerned about the spiritual welfare of the church. To him, you see, the church is not some non-profit organization. To him, the church is not some sort of place where he can have power and position, or that he's pushing for accolades, or appreciation, or he wants to become well-known, or whatever it might be. But just like a father... Desires that his own daughter be a pure virgin before she gets married. Paul desires that the church be pure as the bride of Christ. You see, in biblical times, here's what it would happen. In that biblical times, young men and young women, often in their teenage years, early teens, they would be betrothed. They would be betrothed. Sometimes it was earlier on, they were pledged. ...to some other young gal, but they were betrothed to another gal, a young woman. And during that betrothal period, which was generally one year, they were considered married. But they wouldn't consummate that marriage until the end of that year. And during that year, it would allow for the young man to establish a trade... He'd be able to establish a trade. He was going to begin a new family. He needed work to do to support his new family. And it would also provide a period of time for the young woman to show that she was pure. And it was the responsibility of the father. It was the responsibility of the father to be sure that his daughter was a pure virgin. To protect the purity of his daughter. And so Paul takes that analogy. A very a very, self-evident, very self-evident desire of any father who is going to give his daughter away. Which we even do now during our wedding ceremonies. That his desire would be to protect his daughter's purity. So too Paul wanted to protect the church's purity as he presented the church to Christ. And that is the analogy that's used here. The church had been seduced, you see, by these false teachers. They had been led away, who didn't care about the spiritual purity of the church as long as it fulfilled their own needs. That's how false teachers are. Self-promoting, self-congratulating. One of the characteristics of these false teachers was promoting immorality. If you look in chapter 12, verse 21. Later on, he says... I am afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality and sensuality which they have practiced. This was perhaps potentially going on in the church It's not just bad theology. When you have somebody who is a false spiritual teacher, it's not just bad theology. It is a corrupt moral life. Someone who's suffering spiritually, you see, the false teacher has no concern. They don't care if people aren't growing in the Lord. They're there because the church feeds whatever it is that they want. Their ego, their power, their power book, their their pandering of their moral desires. That's how it is with false teachers they don't care about the purity of the church but a true authentic spiritual leader is how by his concern for what is true verse 3 by his concern for the truth I'm afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ the references to Genesis 3 To Genesis 3 and the fall of mankind. If you turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 3, the very first book of the Bible, it tells us the account. And we begin reading in verse 6 of Genesis 3. Genesis 3, verse 6. It says there, a little bit early on, In Verse 1, let's say. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, for the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. She was enticed by the serpent. The fruit appealed to her eyes and to her desires. She was deceived. She disobeyed God and led herself and her husband into sin and plunged the world into sin. It is deception of the serpent to fabricate a lie and to impugn the motives of God. The serpent says, oh, God doesn't want you to have what's good. God doesn't want you to have what is good. And you know what? Has God truly questioning God? Questioning not only God and what he said, but questioning the motives of God. And the woman was deceived. And Paul's concern for these Corinthians that they would be led astray, just like the event that happened that plunged the world into sin. False teachers will present something enticing, they'll present something new, a new fad, a new system, a new approach. Something that is different than what is the straightforward understanding of the Word of God, questioning the goodness of God. And Satan has always tried to twist that which is true, adding in things or slightly modifying things. We see this happening in other religious books in the world. In the Quran, for example, in Surah chapter 12, verse 11 to 20, it tells about the story of Joseph. Remember the Joseph of many colors? It talks about that in the Quran. It says Joseph didn't go seeking his brothers up at Dothan. You remember when he was sent to go find your brothers, you know? He found his brothers. No, the story in the Quran says that what? His brothers... They already plotted his death. They persuaded Jacob to let him go. And they simply wanted to have him come for fun and sport. And they they got him into their power. They threw him into a well. And it wasn't them who sold Joseph into slavery. No. There was some trader that came by who wanted to draw water from the well. And he found Joseph and he sold him. And he sold him for a few dirhams rather than the substantial price of 20 shekels of silver. And then the Quran goes on in Surah chapter 12 verse 36 to say that Joseph tried to convert two youths, the baker and the butler, to Islam, away from idolatry. A little twisting of the story to imply something else. When you go to Israel, there's a rock there and the dome of the rock. And in that, in that dome, it's believed by them that that is where Abraham was called to sacrifice Ishmael. Not Isaac. In the Book of Mormon, according to Alma 7.12, Jesus was born at Jerusalem. Not Bethlehem. Or in Mormonism, yes, they believe that Jesus existed and Satan existed, yes. But they don't believe that they're enemies in terms of how they began. They began as brothers, they say. Satan has always tried to take what is true and twist it slightly so that it becomes condemning deceptive and false and the false teachers are the same these men had infiltrated the church they'd come in and brought in false ideas false teaching now these weren't the Judaizers that had come in for instance to Galatia none likely of that. They weren't quite the same. They, the Judaizers, remember who came into Galatia that Paul writes to the Galatians about, were legalists who wanted everybody to be circumcised and follow the Old Testament laws. These were likely Palestinian Jews. You know, they were, as I shared with you in 1221, they were, in a sense, encouraging licentiousness, encouraging immorality. But whoever these false teachers were, they diverted their attention, the church's attention, away from its main purpose and its main main focus, which was the simplicity of a love for Christ, simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. How? By preaching another Jesus, another Spirit, another gospel, a false Jesus. And you'll find that is characteristic of all cults. They'll often attack three areas, two or three areas. One is the authority of the Word of God. They'll always have another book. They'll always say that the Bible is in error. They'll have their own translation. They'll always attack the Word of God. And secondly, they'll attack the person of Jesus. The person of Jesus Oh, they'll say he's an avatar. They'll say that he's Michael the archangel. They'll say that he's a great prophet. They'll say that he was a revolutionary, a guru, a reformer. They'll say that he was a spirit being. All of these things, many other religions characterize Jesus as someone other than the Son of God. God himself. The second member of the Trinity who came in the flesh to die for your sins and mine as an atonement. On the cross, there's always a different type of Jesus. There's always a different spirit, a demonic spirit behind false teaching. And another gospel, another area that cults will always attack is the way of salvation. The way of salvation, not only the word of God, but the person of Christ and how a person is saved. Because, as has been said before, there's only really two religions in the world. One religion, which is all of the world's religion. A religion of works, righteousness. That you become good by doing good things. You become righteous before God by following a set of rules. And then you gain that righteousness and you gain entrance into heaven. Christianity, on the other hand, offers faith. And salvation as a gift of God. And that one, when, when one receives Christ, they desire to do that which is good. Desire to do what is right. Salvation is by grace. And for Christians, the emphasis is not on all that we have to do, but on loving God. Devoting ourselves to God. Giving ourselves as a living sacrifice to Him. How much God has poured into your life, we give back to God because of all that Christ has done. There are many things that woo us as Christians away from the simplicity of devotion to Christ. Many good things, many activities or events or sometimes ministry, whatever it may be. It's an idol in the heart. When the simplicity of our devotion to Christ has been superseded by something else that we would say, you know what, I'd rather do that than go and be with God. I'd rather do that. I don't have time. I don't have time for God. I don't have time to study or read the Word of God. I don't think those things are as important as desirable for me. And there's an idol in the heart. And the question is, what Are you going to do about that idol? Whatever it may be. Maybe it's success or activities, achievements. Whatever it may be. Maybe it's work or possessions. What are we going to do about that idol? The lie that Eve was told. The lie that Eve was told was, you know what? God has held back something from you. God has held back something from you that will really benefit you. It'll make you happier than what God has said. And that's the enticement that always comes to us as well. That something other than God will satisfy your heart's desire more than God will. More than God will. That sitting in the presence of God, I don't have time for that. Because there's all these other things I'd rather do. I'd rather go be entertained or have fun. Or whatever it may be, rather than speak with God. And Paul's concern for them, as a genuine leader, was not what these false teachers were promulgating. His concern was that they be pure, like a father to his daughter. And secondly, that they would live in what was true. Not another Jesus. Not another gospel. Not another spirit. The highest priority... Was to be God. Not only was a genuine spiritual leader those things. But he lists out four other aspects that characterize a true, authentic, credible leader. And that is that they come with knowledge. They come with knowledge. He says, where I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. Now, some say, well, is he comparing himself to the twelve apostles here? The answer is, it could be, but likely not. As likely as he is having the tone within this whole chapter, that of sort of a facetious or a sarcasm that comes. The most eminent apostles probably refers to these false teachers. I don't consider myself in the least inferior to those big shots over there. But even if I am unskilled in speech, I know what I'm talking about. Remember what he was saying before? He wasn't, he wasn't somebody who was good in speaking, public speaking. He was unskilled. In fact, that carries the meaning of somebody who is a layman. That word carries the meaning of somebody who is untrained or unskilled or an amateur and not eloquent, not a good orator. In fact, that word from there, unskilled, comes from the Greek word idiotes, from which we get the word idiot. Even if I talk like an idiot, I know what I'm talking about, he's saying. I know what I am saying. It's not inferior in knowledge. And knowledge of what is true. Knowledge of what is true. It wasn't making stuff up. This was stuff that was true. And authentic teachers will major on the Word of God. What the Word of God teaches. Just like 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent to present yourselves approved unto God. A workman who does not need to be ashamed. Correctly handling what? The Word of truth. And that is why it takes so long for those who are Sunday school teachers and pastors and teachers of the Word of God to spend tremendous amounts of time studying and studying so that they can divide the Word of God rightly. But there's been a trend, I don't know if you know, past 20 years or so, a trend for some churches not to encourage training. For those who would be spiritual leaders. And you could just go and do it and preach whatever you... Or be in the church because what? Seminaries or Bible schools, they'll corrupt you. That's the sentiment. They'll take you and they'll twist you around. And it's true, some of them will. The more liberal ones will. But pursuing the knowledge of God, learning how to divide the word correctly is an important aspect of one who will be a spiritual leader. You would never go to a doctor who said, you know what? It's just too expensive. It costs hundreds of thousands of dollars to go to medical school. It takes too much time and really isn't necessary. You do what I did. $300 online. You can go to this website and download your own diploma. I had a friend, you know. Well, I, I haven't talked to them in years. I know someone. Let's put it that way. I know someone who, they had a friend who wanted to get married. So they went online and downloaded an ordination certificate so they could be authorized to do this wedding. And I was appalled. That doesn't qualify anybody. Learning the Word of God is essential for someone who is going to be teaching and an authentic spiritual leader. You see, some are afraid of knowledge and learning. Oh, we don't want... Why? Because, oh, knowledge will puff you up. But as our kid Hughes says, you cannot, you cannot be profoundly impacted by what you do not know. Ignorance is not bliss. That's why it's so important for a Christian. That's why it's important for you and I to take whatever opportunities we have. To take advantage of those opportunities to learn, those opportunities to grow, opportunities to read. So that you can be discerning and not gullible. Many people, though, are content with sort of shallow, superficial kind of stories or tidbits or whatever. They're not interested in learning and dissecting the Word of God for themselves so that their lives will be edified. They're not interested in doctrine or thinking deeply about subjects. They don't care or make an effort to learn. They don't know, and when they don't know... They're easily deceived. I remember when I was a kid, the first time I looked underneath the hood of a car. I didn't know what I was looking at. I didn't know a thing. And if you don't know, if you don't know how a computer works or whatever, and something goes wrong, well, you're taking it to somebody, and they can tell you just about anything about your car. And how do you feel? Well, okay. And you just pay. You don't know, because you don't... You don't, and you don't want to know sometimes. I mean, you know, I, I have a hard time. I remember when I was living in California, I, ha- I just really didn't like to get my old change. Because every time I got my old change, always, there's something wrong with the car. And now, I've figured out what I'm looking at. And there are certain things that I don't know, and that's fine, but I know enough to know something about what I'm driving around. And you ought to know, too, about something, about the Word of God. This is what you live your life by. People will tell you this and that, and you've got to know, what does the Word of God say about this or that, whatever it is. And it's important to have knowledge. An authentic teacher will desire to study and know. Fourthly, an authentic spiritual leader is marked by... There's sacrifice without greed. Sacrifice without greed. Or did I commit a sin by humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? You see, once again, with a hint of sarcasm, he comes. And he counters a charge that was leveled against him. And the charge is this, that you know what? Paul... Isn't taking anything from you, the false teachers would say. Paul isn't taking from anything from you. You know why? Because you know what? When he takes things from you, it implies an obligation. And you know, he doesn't want to be obligated to you. What he's saying is not worth his salt. You know what? People back then, they didn't. They didn't do that. They took money for whatever they would say. In fact, that's how Greek orators would make a living. They would be very good in speaking. That's why the whole issue of eloquence was very high on the priority list. If you were eloquent and you were a polished speaker, you could say and you would be paid for it. And you made your money by how well, how erudite you would be. Sort of the wisdom, the philosophers, they would, they would pay these folks. And Paul doesn't want any money. Why? Because he's, uh, he, 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 he's not a true guy. What he's saying is not worth anything. That's why he doesn't want anything. He doesn't want anything. But that was Paul's policy. Whenever Paul, when you see in the New Testament, Paul went into a new area. He went into a new city or a new town, often evangelistically, to plant a church. And when he went to plant new work, he never took funds from them. He didn't want to take, he didn't want to make money an obstacle. When he went to plant a church, when he began to establish a new work... That was their double-edged sword. I mean, if he had taken money from them, they might have accused him of profiteering. That's how it was. Paul's approach to a new church wasn't like these hucksters. He didn't marry me. Metaphorically, though, robbed. So he says, metaphorically robbed and received gifts from established churches. Even if they didn't have much, he still received it from them, from the churches of Macedonia. We know from the past that we've studied that they were impoverished as well, but they gave generously. He did receive money from those who were established, but never from a newly established work. That was his policy in establishing new work. And he says even to the church at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, when the the elders gathered around, when the elders gathered around and he was about to ship off, you know, and he gathered the elders and he said to them, I've coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know how these hands ministered to my own needs and to the needs of the men who were with me. He said the same thing to the Thessalonian church Nor did we eat, 3, 8, and 9, anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you, so that you would follow our example. See, in no way did he want to be seen as pilfering from these newly new Christians. A newly planted church, or evangelists efforts, he never wanted to be a barrier. Though they ought to have known... Because you remember in the book of First Corinthians, he writes to them in chapter 9. His defense was, don't we have a right to eat or drink, verse 4? Don't we have the right to take along a believing wife? Or do only Barnabas and I have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? And he goes on to say, it is written in the law of Moses... You should not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. They ought to have known not to be deceived by these false teachers who would say, you know what, he's not taking payment. Why? Because he's not worth his salt. They should have known better. Whether it's a soldier or a farmer, he's entitled to it, but he didn't take it. Because why? He loved them. You know, today's televangelists or today's TV Preachers, a major part of their teaching is the prosperity gospel. Health, wealth, prosperity gospel preachers major on the material. But a genuine teacher desires that the purity of the church be maintained through the truth. And he speaks with knowledge and he's not filled with greed. And fifthly, he loves them, he loves the church. As the truth of Christ is in me, the boasting of mine will not be stopped. Why? I do not love you. God knows I do. He's going to continue to speak the truth in love. He's going to continue to mention within the regions of Achaia, implying that perhaps these false teachers had spread their undermining slander against Paul in all other regions as well. He was going to continue to tell them that this is what he was going to do. He was going to, as Paul tells Timothy... Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. For a time will come, it says, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myth. The false teachers had trickled the ears, perhaps, of the Corinthians enough to deceive them. But Paul was intent. He was going to tell them what's true. He was going to speak the truth. Why? Because he loved them. He wanted them to know. He didn't say, well, that's the way you are. That's the way you want to be. I brush the dust off my feet and boom, you're out of the door. He didn't say that at all. But an authentic, genuine spiritual teacher cares and loves the church. And lastly, an authentic spiritual teacher is faithful. Verse 12 I'm doing what I'm doing, I will continue to do. And he goes on, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which we are boasting. In other words, he's not going to change. He's not going to change. What he's going to do instead is what? He's going to be faithful. Because what he does differentiates him from one who is A false teacher. He's not greedy. He cares. He continues to teach the truth. He desires the purity of the church. He does it without creed. It differentiates him from the world. False teachers, though, they wanted prominence. They wanted an opportunity, it says, to be regarded. Maybe that fame. Maybe that influence. Maybe that was their motive that they had. The characteristics of false teachers today... Is the same, you see? Cults, churches, there's always a man on top. And many times, what characterizes a cult as a cult, some of the things are that they're very authoritarian. Whatever the leader says, that's what's going to happen all the time. They're dictatorial, they're domineering, they're interested in being known. They're not interested in dividing the word of God correctly. They often hold very stifling amounts of power. Again, it's not bad beliefs or bad theology only, but they have an immoral life. They're prideful and controlling and self-centered. Why? Because of the disguise they put on. They put on disguise, and that is the last point here. What's their disguise? That they disguise themselves as messengers and servants of Jesus. Messengers and servants of Jesus. You see, it says in verse 13, these men are false apostles. No wonder, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. The word for apostles, pseudo-apostolos, only appears here. Probably coined by Paul. These are spiritual charlatans. These are spiritual hucksters. People parade themselves around. Yeah, it's interesting, David Pinn... A Spanish speaking preacher writes, quote, today's witches, today's witches are not women with a pimple on their nose and only a few teeth, nor do they have a disagreeable voice and a sneer. On the contrary, in my country, a Hispanic country, for example, modern witches are blonde, speak softly, are nice and even talk about God. How have things changed? Only the packaging changed, not the poison. Unquote. And such 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 false teachers have always plagued God's people, and He warns them through Jeremiah when He says the prophets are prophesying falsehood in My name. Or in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, "Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing." But inwardly are ravenous fools. Or in the Olivet discourse, Jesus says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. And John writes, Don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. You see, people are often taken, they're often deceived. By false teachers. And I've watched a number of times, like I've shared with you, people who come, maybe not into this church, but in other ministries I've been at, people have been taken. They've been taken by some slick talking spiritual salesman who exerts influence, who's very excited, who's very enthusiastic about some very charismatic and a good, knowledgeable guy as well. And they're convinced that this is what they need to do, that this is what they need to learn. And they're drawn away. And they've become some other religion. They've gone off into some cult. And they will not be convinced sometimes because they've been duped. So, how can we be discerning people? Is there a formula that helps us or some steps that we can take? What does the Bible say? How can we be more discerning? The Bible does tell us. If you look in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5... 1 Corinthians chapter five, or sorry, 1 Thessalonians chapter five. There's a list of general spiritual basics of the Christian life in verse 20, 18, 19, 20. He tells them to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. These are the things that they ought to do as, as Christians. And then he says in verse 21, examine everything carefully. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Examine everything carefully. After all of these things that a Christian ought to do, this is what they needed to do to be discerning. Examine everything. Number one, we need to judge everything. Examine. That means to judge, to be discriminating. It means to test, analyze, or prove. It refers to the idea of testing and scrutinizing something Truth from error, carefully. Now, you hear somebody else say, hey, Doesn't the Bible say don't judge lest you yourself be judged? Well, it does. In 7, one, Matthew 7.1, it tells us, In the way that you judge, you will be judged also by your standard of measure be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? When do not practice, notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will clearly see to take the speck out of your brother's eye. It doesn't say, you know what, leave the log in your own eye, or don't help your brother who has a speck in his eye. What it says is that we are not to be hypocritical, judgmental people. Who have our own issue and yet are condemning others in a judgmental way. It says, help your brother to take the speck out of his eye. To make discriminating thoughts and decisions according to the Word of God. We're told other places not to judge motives. But we're not told, never judge teaching. Never think whatever somebody is saying. Always believe what is told to you? No. We're not to swallow everything lock, stock, and barrel. But to be discerning like the Bereans. Who even when the Apostle Paul came to speak with the Bereans. Do you remember what they did in Acts 17? It says, now these were more noble minded than those in Thessalonica. They, they had come from Thessalonica, you see. And they'd come to the Bereans. And the Bereans they were teaching. And they taught the Bereans. And they said, for they received the word of God with great eagerness. Eagerness. Not skepticism. Examining, though, the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. They were looking at the Word of God to examine and say, What is this guy saying? Is it true or is it not true? And that's okay to do. To be discriminating, to examine all things, it says. To judge all things. And secondly, to cling to what is evil and to shun. I mean, cling to what is good and shun what is evil. That is the second and third thing. We're to guard it. Paul says, Paul reminds Timothy. You remember when he talks to Timothy in the book of 2 Timothy, he says why? Guard. Retain the sound words. Retain the standard of sound words. And guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. The treasure that has been entrusted to you. Cling. Hold fast to it. Embrace what is true. You've learned from the Word of God. God has taught you certain things. He's taught you good truth. Hold to that. Reject evil. Separate yourselves from what is evil, it says. You see, some Christians think, well, you know what? I've got to immerse myself in all of the things that are immoral in the world in order to be able late. I've got to expose myself to all sorts of things so I can just like, be like the world to reach the world. I've got to know all of these things that they're talking about. You know what? The Bible doesn't encourage that at all. The Bible doesn't encourage you to be like the world, to reach the world. Instead, it tells you what? To shun evil. To shun evil. In fact, 1 Peter 4 tells us that when your friends who do not know God, they begin to do all of these things. It says carousing, drinking parties, drunkenness, sensuality. In other words, in verse 4, it says in all of this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. And what do they do? They'll malign you. They will have to give an account of him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. We're to shun evil and to embrace and to guard what is true. Be in discriminating thinking and people who are discerning. People who don't know you will be surprised. And what makes you attractive is how different you are. The life that you live that is different. The attitudes that you carry. So, being a discerning person means examining or judging, scrutinizing things. And rejecting what is evil, clinging to what is good. And destroying speculations as we went through the other week. Taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Saying, is this biblical? We as believers are not to be gullible, but to recognize, you know what? The difference between a true teacher and leader and a false one is the fact that they care about the purity and the truth. And the fact that they seek after what is the knowledge of God. The fact that they don't aren't greedy. The fact that they love the church, love the people and they're faithful in what they do. Differentiating themselves from those who are false. And my prayer is that you will be discerning, thinking people and thinking and understanding what is true because God desires that we not be deceived by falsehood that Satan so often panders through various means in our lives. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we give you thanks for your word. And Father, so often... We can be distracted from the simplicity of devotion to your Son. Father, I pray that we might devote ourselves, but that we might be workmen who do not need to be ashamed, who can correctly handle the Word of Truth, who desire to study your Word, who love your Word, who love the Truth, so that we, O Father, might be people who walk in your way, And parents who teach their children the way of the Lord. May we be faithful. For we, O Father, have been blessed, so blessed by you with the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, Amen.